Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and in this week's episode, we'll be discussing Theresa May's first 100 days as Prime Minister, plus the almost total implosion of UKIP. I'm delighted to be joined by George Parker, the FT's political editor, Robert Shrimsley, the managing editor of FT.com, plus Matthew Goodwin, a senior fellow at Chatham House. Thank you all for joining. Friday marked exactly 100 days since Theresa May became British Prime Minister. On July 13th, she stood outside 10 Downing Street for the first time as Prime Minister and echoed the words of Margaret Thatcher, claiming that she would build a Britain that works for everyone. It's a theme that Theresa May has echoed throughout her first few months in office, but Brexit has remained the key theme of her leadership, whether she wanted to or not. No matter how strong or coherent her domestic agenda is, Europe and EU look as if they're going to define her premiership. So George Parker, you've obviously followed Theresa May in many years in many different positions. How do you think this incarnation of Theresa May, the Prime Minister, differs to her as Home Secretary? I think probably surprisingly little. It's quite interesting the way that she's running Number 10 in a rather similar way to the way she ran the Home Office. You know, speaking to an official the other day, he said, welcome to Home Office Britain. Certainly in terms of the style in which she's running Number 10, very closely controlled, tight team around her. That's very similar. And I think the truth is, 100 days in, we're still really waiting to find out what it is that makes Theresa May tick. She gave a speech in Birmingham shortly before her coronation as Prime Minister, which still sits on my desk. And that stands as the most defining text of what she believes in, the whole, what you were just describing there, sort of targeting policies that the people just struggling to get by. But in a whole host of areas, we're waiting for that policy statement to be fleshed out, whether it's on the economy, whether it's on social policy, and indeed on the big issue, as you mentioned, the intro Brexit. When Tony Blair became Prime Minister, his first 100 days was just throwing everything. There was the Bank of England independence, there was the ban on tobacco advertising. It was just bang, 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 let's have a big effort to look as if we're a dynamic forward government. We've certainly not had that with Theresa May. I know one of the reasons was the lack of a Tory leadership contest because that was meant to be used to flesh out policy ideas, but it never happened because Andrea Leadsom dropped out and she was coronated. I think that it's a bit of an unfair comparison. Tony Blair had several years to prepare to become Prime Minister. He could plan his first 100 days. Theresa May didn't have that long to get ready to become Prime Minister. But I do think one of the important things we learn in politics, and I remember when Gordon Brown to go from, from Tony Blair, and everyone said, oh, we're now about to see the real Gordon Brown. He's been unleashed. The truth is, if you get to 60, you are the person you are. And you're not going to suddenly see a wildly different Theresa May from the politician that we've seen for years. She's innately cautious. She takes her time. And I was joking with you earlier, said about you know, 100 days of May. Yes, she may do this. She may not. She may have Heathrow. We may have a hard Brexit. We may have a number of things. We just don't know yet. But do you think, Robert, she's going to be defined as a good prime minister based on what we've seen so far about both her leadership and her character? It's very hard to say at this stage. Uh, You talked about 100 days of May and, you know, that's the pun about her, isn't it? It is 100 days of May. We may have a hard Brexit. We may have a soft Brexit. She may side with Liam Fox. She may side with Philip Hammond. She may stop a Chinese nuclear deal or she may not. We don't really know yet. The only thing I think you can say with absolute conviction is that when someone reaches the age she has... 
they're not going to change markedly as a person. And I remember when Gordon Brown took over as prime minister and people said, oh, he's going to be unleashed now. So you have a completely different Gordon Brown now that he's no longer chancellor. And of course, we saw exactly the same Gordon Brown because every idea he'd had, he'd had it already. And I think something similar is true with Theresa May. She's going to be the person we thought she was going to be. I think your point, George, about it being the Home Office Prime Minister is very striking because this was the big question for Westminster watchers. What's her foreign policy agenda going to be? How is she going to tackle all the other areas of policy? And so far, it's been a focus on those kind of core things of borders, of immigrants and that sort of thing, but not a whole lot on how she sees Britain's role in the rest of the world apart from generic things about liking Europe and working with China and that sort of thing. Well, that's exactly true. I mean, the people that she surrounded herself with, people she worked with at the Home Office who see things through a home office prism. She hasn't made a big speech on the economy yet. She hasn't made a big speech on foreign policy. I think what she has done very successfully is mapped out the problems facing the country at this very important moment in our national history. The referendum she correctly identified as being a big moment where we have to address fundamental things in society and the economy. The question is, as Robert was alluding to, is what's she going to do about it? That's the thing. Is she really prepared to take on vested interest in the Conservative Party to deliver for the working class voters, the ordinary working class voters, as she calls them, that she's been talking about. But you're right on issues like foreign policy and the economy. We really don't know. And I guess Philip Hammond's autumn statement on November the 23rd will give us the first clue as to her thinking. But again, you know, we haven't heard it from her own mouth. The generous case, the case for Theresa May, is the one that George was sketching out there, which is that what she has done is shown that she gets what caused the anger that led to the Brexit vote, that she understands and is trying to place herself in sympathy with the cries of unhappiness from the rest of the country. And that's wise and sensible that she's done it. The issue is at some point she has to deliver on the rhetoric. Mm. And the other thing I would say is that she's constrained on a number of different levels. The first one is she was elected on a Conservative manifesto. And the more she deviates from that, the harder it becomes for her to push her agenda through Parliament. She's got a parliamentary majority of 17. I don't know whether we're going to get on to this step in a minute about whether she might call an early general election, but certainly the parliamentary arithmetic boxes are in and she's cautious. So all those things militate against her being a bold and decisive prime minister, but the agenda she's mapped out is certainly that. And we'll come back to whether she should call an election or not in a moment, but her relationship with Philip Hammond has certainly taken an interesting turn this week, that when he was brought in to the Chancellery, everyone thought he was going to be a very steady pair of hands and he was going to work very closely with Theresa May, but we've seen more and more signs that all is not well between that top and it's certainly not going to be a David Cameron, George Osborne partnership of unity, and Philip Hammond looks as if he's going to be the enemy within, certainly for the Brexiteers, and so certainly challenging Theresa May on some of those tougher things that Robert was saying earlier. That's going to be an interesting dynamic, particularly with the autumn statement, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. Well, totally. And we know that Theresa May had a terrible relationship with the Treasury while George Osborne was there, particularly as she was trying to push through tough controls on immigration, the Treasury saying what the damage this is going to cause to the economy. And we're getting exactly the same arguments now being played out with two different people. She's in number 10, he's next door in number 11. But the same arguments are being played out. You know, she wants to control immigration. Philip Hammond says, well, what about access to the markets? The row this week was about Philip Hammond suggesting that overseas students should be taken out of the migration numbers because he sees students as a vital part of the economy, a vital part of our economy is the university sector. And Theresa May let it be known that that was categorically not being discussed. I mean, that was fairly brutal. And I think, as you said, Seb, that sort of reveals there is a tension at the top of government, which goes beyond those issues. It goes into things like corporate governance as well, where Philip Hammond takes a very traditional 
right-wing Treasury view. We've certainly seen a different kind of conservatism from Theresa May, Robert, that David Cameron's was all about appealing to the centre ground and trying to win over centre, centre-left voters to the Conservative Party, perhaps at the risk of alienating some on the further right fringes, which is what led to the rise of UKIP, whereas Theresa May seems to be going for those UKIP voters who were ignored by David Cameron and some of the traditional Labour voters, which has left this sort of gap in the centre, which some have said of the Liberal Democrats were a better position. They could fill that gap. I don't entirely agree with this analysis. I think it depends on your definition of the centre. The centre that you're referring to, that David Cameron and George Osborne was targeting, was a liberal metropolitan centre, more liberally minded on civil rights and social issues. The centre that she's going for is a more traditional Middle England centre. And if you separate if it's possible, the Brexit part of the argument from this. It's about people who want to get on in society and are finding it much harder than they did before. People who can see their children can't afford their own homes, people who don't see the job possibilities that they would like to see. And I think historically, over more than 100 years, the Conservative Party has been at its most successful and most important when it has recognised a social issue which a more left-wing party would feel is its to claim. But it has come in and tackled those issues on the grounds that this is how you save capitalism, this is how you save society. It's by recognising as a problem and moving in and tackling it so that you don't get a more revolutionary upheaval. So I think she's redefining a centre. This is the shift of the Overton window, to use a nice cliche there, George. Yeah, I think that's right. I agree entirely with Robert on that. I think where the rubber hits the road is when we see the policies that actually deliver on that very ambitious agenda. It's very easy for Theresa May to say we're on the side of ordinary working class people. But I think I've made this point before. You know, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to have a more redistributed tax system? Are you going to use the autumn statement, for example, to tackle the issue of higher rate tax relief on pensions, which you could do and you would hit... Tory voters very hard, but you would help working class people who are struggling to save for a pension. That's exactly right. Are they going to stop the bias that politics has had in both the main parties towards the old and yes. away from the young? The clearest signal you could see that they mean this would be to stop handing out baubles to the over 60s because they know they vote and start doing some things that help the younger generations. Exactly. And that all the way across the waterfront, those are how we're going to judge because the speeches people make on the steps of number 10 they're not how prime ministers are ultimately judged. They're judged on policy, and that's where we're going to need more than 100 days to judge Theresa May. And finally, I think the theme that you've both mentioned, is she or is she not going to call a general election? Because she became prime minister in a very odd set of circumstances following the referendum and David Cameron's resignation and Andrea Leadsom dropping out of the Tory leadership race. And there was a good case you should have gone to the country very quickly, George, to say to them, look, I'm a different prime minister. I'm going to act on Brexit. And it would have acted as a confirmation, a rubber stamp on the Brexit vote. She hasn't done that. But as you said, as time goes on, as she moves further away from Cameronism and that agenda, the question really does stand, should she go to the country and will she go to the country? I think there's a very strong case for going to the country. And you look at the Ipsos Mori opinion poll this week. 18 points. So the Tories 18 points ahead of Labour. I think it's the biggest lead they've had in government since the Falklands War. And you know it's not going to get any better for Theresa May than that. But the reason I think that she won't have an early election, apart from the fact that she said she won't, is... To go back to the Gordon Brown comparisons we were making earlier, I just think she's too cautious to do it. You have to be very brave to throw away a mandate which takes you up to 2020 and gamble it on an election in the middle of a Brexit negotiation. It would be a very bold decision. I'm not sure it's in Theresa May's nature. I think George is right. I certainly think that we will look back at this and we could quite easily conclude that it was the worst decision she made not to have one because, as George says, things are not going to get better 
And I mean, at every level, you have to say this has been an act of extraordinary prime ministerial generosity. Had she gone for an election when she became the Labour Party, its own MPs were telling people that their leader wasn't fit to be prime minister. The Liberals were nowhere. You know, UKIP is beating each other up in corridors. You are never going to get more propitious circumstances to go to the country. And even though I understand the fear of maybe there'll be an anti-Brexit backlash in certain key constituencies, I understand why she's cautious. But... Almost all the things she needs to do around Brexit and almost all the things she wants to do would be so much easier if she had a majority of 50. And all the polls suggest that she would get it and some if she went. So I really do think she may look back at the decision not to go and regret it. She still could, though. You know, there's no reason that she couldn't call an election, say, when Article 50 is triggered next year. It may still be OK by then, but if we've had five months of the pound falling and feeding through to people's pockets in the shops, it's less good than it was in September. So I think it'll probably still be OK to go then. We don't know what's around the corner. Let's face it, the predictions game has not been one of the best ones to be in this year. But yes, I think she could still go. And I think the arguments for doing so will probably still be there. I think she'll have another look at it in the spring after she activates Article 50. But it's going to be a big call. I'm not sure she's going to make it. And while the Conservative Party is 18 points ahead in some polls, another political party is not doing so well. We're not talking about Labour for a change, but UKIP, which has lost a third of its poll rating over this summer and was thrown into yet another leadership crisis as its best hope for the future, Stephen Wolfe announced suddenly he was resigning from the party. This summarises a very drastic period for the party. Ever since the referendum, it's tried to figure out what it stands for, who's going to lead it and where's it going. At present, it's got a money, leadership and purpose vacuum. So Matthew Goodwin, we've both probably spent far too much of our lives dissecting and following following the joys of UKIP land, which is easily the oddest and in some ways most fascinating part of British politics. But over the past five years, I can't think of a time when UKIP has faced greater challenges for its purpose. Do you agree with that? And do you think this is the end for it? Well, I certainly agree that uh, UKIP's future has never perhaps looked so uncertain. The only possible comparable period in time would be the dark days of the 1990s and the early 2000s when UKIP would sort of lurch from one caretaker leader to another. But in the modern era, this is a party that looks like it's in freefall. And if you think about where UKIP is, it's not only the external stuff, it's not only Theresa May parking her tanks on UKIP's lawn, talking about grammar schools, immigration, and we're beginning to see that defection from UKIP back to the Conservatives. But it's also the internal stuff. And this is the stuff that I really think is problematic for UKIP. Hundreds of thousands of pounds in debt, losing senior activists, leadership vacuum. Most of the people that can run campaigns have left. I mean, this is really bread and butter stuff for a political party and it's problematic. So if we just begin with the internal stuff, obviously Nigel Farage announced that he was resigning soon after the Brexit vote. And this is the, I think, third or fourth time he's resigned from the party. And the reasons were numerous, I think, that he felt he'd had enough of it. And he'd also had a rapid increase in the number of death threats towards him following the referendum where he was a very prominent figure. And inside UKIP, I think Farage is known as Kim Jong Farage by some because he ruled it with an iron fist and very much held all these different elements, red UKIP, purple UKIP, blue UKIP, you name them, they were all held together. But as soon as he left, that's when it all really began to unfurl. I think I'd certainly agree with that in the sense that, you know, we were never quite sure whether UKIP was a political party or UKIP was a man. And that was really the sort of debate that swirled around the organisation. And when Farage left, I think 
that really brought to the surface a lot of the unresolved factionalism. And I don't actually think that was ideological. I think that was more actually about personality. You know, Suzanne Evans and Douglas Carswell and Neil Hamilton and the list goes on and on. I think a lot of them simply didn't like Nigel Farage and they didn't like his strident tone. And in response, a lot of those who felt very strongly loyal to Farage saw those particular individuals as a threat to the party and to the Farage tradition. So once he really stepped back, who was going to fill those boots? Now, initially it went to Diane James, but she then promptly resigned. Which we still don't really know why she resigned. Well, I think she stood down primarily because um, she probably took a look at the books and realised she wasn't able to do everything that she wanted to do and probably saw how much trouble the party was in and then there were some personal reasons thrown in. But now that sort of brings us to where we are today, which is still a sort of standoff between two factions. Is Suzanne Evans going to go for the leadership supported by other Farage critics, Douglas Carswell, Neil Hamilton, etc.? Is Paul Nuttall finally going to stand up and go for the leadership? He's been groomed for the leadership for 10, 15 years. He was Farage's number two. He's got big support at the grassroots. Are we finally going to get that standoff that would actually enable UKIP to move on? Because it does really need that, that ever since UKIP really began to rise in public prominence in about 2014, you have had this battle. And this is actually interesting because Suzanne Evans and Douglas Carnswell both came into UKIP in a wave of good feeling from Nigel Farage. And then it's happened time and time again with people. After about six months of being in the circle of trust, they fall out of favour and then they get just tossed on the pile of people. And there's very few people within UKIP who have managed to stick close to Nigel throughout his 10 years or so of being at the helm of the party. And Suzanne Evans, as you said, she was deputy chair. She wrote the general election manifesto and was thought to be a pretty good candidate to take the party forward in a less sort of caustic direction. It would still be Eurosceptic and nationalistic in its tone, but it would maybe tone down some of the rhetoric in a way. But she's really fallen out of favour. And the question about her I have is, does she have much support in the party? Yes, she's got a big media profile and is well-liked by journalists in Westminster, but will you get members vote for her? I think in a party that lacks prominent, competent activist Susan Evans has stood out but I think her support among the membership has been exaggerated and I suspect were she to stand now for the leadership will discover that perhaps while Susan Evans is very popular in the media she's not necessarily popular among the UKIP rank and file who pretty much follow whatever Nigel Farage says and if he says look this is somebody that's associated with infighting they tend to basically buy that line and and agree with it. So I think the big question for me now is does Paul Nuttall stand as a Farage deputy and secondly uh, is UKIP actually going to go after the only space that is really left for it at the moment which is in the Labour areas of the country because Theresa May has set up a formidable firewall on that Conservative vote. It's going to be incredibly difficult for UKIP to go back to where it was 2013 to 2015. And I think this is one of the reasons that Stephen Wolfe decided to leave the party, apart from the fact that he was punched in the face by uh, one of his fellow MEPs and ended up in hospital as a result of internal disagreements. He looked at the books and all the rest of it and, and must have been aware that things were not great. But his main thing was that he was thinking of defecting the Tories and he had some conversations with very senior Conservatives about switching over, saying Theresa May's Conservative Party is one that I feel at home in. And thousands of UKIP members will do too in the Whitney by-election this week, which was to replace David Cameron when he stood down as an MP. UKIP got just 1,300-odd votes, so that's nothing for a traditional Shire seat, where a couple of years ago, UKIP would have done really well. 
other. And I think there was no prominence from the candidate, no campaigning structure. And you can see that going forward, can't you? The idea that UKIP is there, but only as a shell of a party. And that raises the question about the north of England, that there's all these seats where the Tories are never going to win because the brand is toxic over many years. And UKIP, if it had a leader like Paul Nutter, who's a northern lad, MEP, very affable fellow, he could do well there. But that requires a lot of things to go right for the party. And at this stage, it doesn't really look as if they're going to happen. I think the first test that we're going to really be able to uh, see how UKIP performs at will be the local elections next spring in 2017, where don't forget you've got local elections across lots of Labour areas in Wales combined with those southern counties, Buckinghamshire and Kent. Now, um, if UKIP is going to show that it can sustain a presence in British politics, then it should save some of those seats that it previously won in 2012, right? Um, But if it completely bombs, then I think we're going to have an answer to that question of, is UKIP on the way out? And if it is on the way out, what will emerge to replace it? And that is where you see people like Aaron Banks and others saying, actually, maybe it's time for a right-wing momentum, as they call it, a sort of grassroots pressure movement to keep the uh, pressure on Theresa May. Yes, Aaron Banks, who is a big donor to UKIP and made himself very prominent over the past 18 months or so in British politics by being one of Nigel Farage's closest allies, as well as his main money man. Um, He's talked about this thing called the People's Movement, I believe is titled, and this idea would be to capitalise on the grassroots momentum that led to Brexit, essentially. And his Leave.eu organisation was very successful in having a very direct, harsh message that certainly won over some voters. And the question is, if the People's Movement does come into formation, possibly with Nigel Farage in some senior role there, it will become the big right-wing voice in British politics. So seeing what happens with that will also have as much to do with the future of UKIP as the election results. I think if you were to just reflect on British politics over the last five years, there have been perhaps 10, 15 occasions where people have completely written off UKIP. And that started after the 2013 local elections and it went right up now to after the referendum. I agree with some of the observers that actually the future looks pretty bleak for UKIP as we sit here in October 2016. But the one thing that I would say is it's also possible to see the openings for a UKIP or a UKIP 2.0? What if the negotiations with the EU go really badly? What if the economy really tanks next year with inflation kicking in? What if people who wanted immigration controls feel that those are not forthcoming? What if the Conservative Party implodes because of infighting and that traditional tendency to be unable to govern with discipline? There are lots of what-ifs that are not just on the horizon in British politics, but are at the front of the landscape. So it's going to be interesting to watch how this evolves. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to all my guests for joining. We'll be back next week for another instalment of FT Politics. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our World Weekly podcast, which is presented by me, Gideon Rachman, the FT's chief foreign policy commentator. Each week, I discuss one of the main political stories of the week with the FT's overseas correspondents and experts, And you can find our latest show at ft.com slash podcasts from Wednesdays. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.